quick housekeeping announcement. I want to let you guys know that we have suspended our 7 p.m. service in its current form. Uh, we are no longer going to be hosting that on a weekly basis. The, the reason for that is because back in September when we launched it, we were really seeking to build a community around that service. And what we've seen over time is it's more of a space where people enter in if they couldn't make the morning, if they missed the morning here and there. So we decided to suspend it in its current form, but what we are launching is on the first Sunday of every month, you can remember that because it's potluck Sunday here in the mornings, we are going to be having a night service gathering over in that space at the warehouse, just like we have been having on a weekly basis. It's going to be a little different though. On the first Sunday of every month, you can join us there. We're actually going to eat prior to service. So I'm going to be part of the hospitality team cooking up some smash burgers every Sunday. It'll be a typical service in line with whatever teaching series we're in the midst of, so you can attend that service instead of coming here in the morning. We'll have worship, we'll have announcements, but what'll be differentiated is the fact that every single time we gather for that first Sunday of the month night service, it'll be a brand new teacher, somebody that we're developing, somebody that we're raising up to be a pastor and a teacher of God's Word. So I'm going to be hosting, I'm going to be supporting them, I'll be prepping alongside them during the week, typically preaching here in the morning, and then joining to see them in that evening service. So you can just go to that service because it's right in line, like let's say we're in the book of Hebrews, we'll be teaching the same text in the book of Hebrews. But here, if you really want to work the system, you can come have breakfast, listen to it with me, and then you can go back, get dinner, we'll feed you all day long, and you can support raising up the next generation. And guys, that's, that's what our heart is. We want to raise up other pastors and teachers. We want to raise up this next generation. We want to see church plants out of this community. Uh, you know, we're not going to base this community on a personality. It's about raising up the people of God that they could all use their giftedness. So it's going to be a really exciting space to be involved in. I'm encouraged that we're going to be doing it, and I hope that you'll join us. Now, moving and just acknowledging the day. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Very glad that all you fathers are in the house with us. I am a father of five myself. So, uh, you know, I, I share in the celebration. We're going to be rewarding you uh, with some root beer and some ice cream after the service so we can help you work on that dad bod. Uh, you know, that's our gift to you. It was, uh, it was about a month or so ago, we got an anonymous note, I just want to say this, that was dropped into the offering basket that said, look, there's a lot of kids crying during service, and if this continues to be an environment filled with distractions, I'm going to have to go to another church. And it was an anonymous comment, so I couldn't address the person uh, privately, but what I will say is that families, we are so glad that you have decided to be here, to be with the people of God. With all the resistance, with all the things coming at you, with all the challenges and how little of the service some of you actually get to hear, we are so grateful that you are making this choice and you are defying all the demographics and trends of your generation by making this a priority. So we're grateful. We stand with you, fathers. I'm so proud to stand with you in this community, to learn alongside you, to, to you know, journey toward Christ-likeness alongside you. Uh, of course, we want a distraction-free environment as best as possible. Your kid's going insane. Please go walk them outside just like my two-year-old goes insane every single week. Okay? Yes, of course, we're going to encourage that. But fathers, you've made this a priority. Grandfathers, you've made this a priority, and you mean so much to those around you. You mean so much to us. So I want to encourage you, but I also want to commission us as fathers, and I also want to commission us in men, as men in general, like you don't have to be a biological father or a biological grandfather to receive this commission I want to give you. 
And it's in light of the fact that there are so many who are experiencing a state of fatherlessness in our world today. And that could be because of loss, that could be because of lack, that could be because of absence in the example of their own earthly father. And I know, I know we've got people who've had fathers that are there, but they weren't there. They weren't really an example of, you know, our father in heaven to their children. There's a lot of those stories. There's a lot of straight orphans in our world. Kids who are in the foster system. And so every man, whether you're a biological father or not, if you're a man in this community, we're all called to be spiritual fathers to the fatherless, to be an example of our Father in heaven to all the people that we encounter. So please receive that commission today. Even if you're not married, if you're married and without kids, we all have a call upon us to envision who our Father in heaven is to those around us. Let me pray that blessing. And if you want to place a hand on the, on the Father that's near you, maybe you're here with your Father, maybe you've you, you got your husband here who's a Father, you want to place a hand on them as I pray this blessing. Heavenly Father, we do look to you on this day. We thank you for the fathers that are here. We thank you for their diligence, their commitment to your example, Christ, to being humble, to being servants, to giving of themselves, to laying down their own lives for the children and for all the lives around them, Lord. Would you fill them with encouragement, both the, the fathers and the grandfathers that are present here that are seeking you, Lord. Fill them with your Holy Spirit for this most important role that's so overlooked in the world but so vital for, for the lives of those that they're touching. And Lord, I pray this commission over them, over myself, Lord, that every single man in this room would take up that call to be a spiritual father to the next generation, that every single one of us would be an example to the fatherless. Lord, there are so many who are lacking that image of what a father is truly supposed to be. And even us, we lack it sometimes, but we look to you, God, and we see it. And we want to live it and share that with those around us. Lord, I pray finally also comfort and encouragement for those who are in a place of lack. Who, who, though they had an earthly father, he was nothing like you, Lord. He was nothing like the ideal that you set forth, Lord. There are many who have felt abandoned. There are some who have felt loss in this last year or in this last many years. So, Lord, would you be their comfort? You are their father in heaven. In everything that they lack, would they turn to you, God, today? And would you fill them up with encouragement? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you all today. And again, enjoy some root beer and ice cream, those dad bods that we're gifting to you. Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 5, if you will, with me. We're in this series. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. Last week was so encouraging. The writer was telling us we're supposed to approach the throne of God's grace with confidence knowing that there's mercy and grace through Jesus' sacrifice. There's, there's help available to us in our times of need. Jesus, our high priest, he's not one who's unable to empathize with us. He can't empathize with us because he took on flesh, because he faced human limitations. And yet, going through all that human weakness, he lived a life that was sinless. He lived a life that fulfilled the will of God in heaven. So, too, we can rely on him, not just for our salvation, not just for forgiveness through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, but we can rely on him for the strength that we require to fulfill and obey the will of God. Now, now here's the contrast, because that was basically one of the most encouraging passages in the entirety of the New Testament. If you didn't hear it, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to go back and listen to it on YouTube, on the podcast. 
But, but here's the contrast. We go from like the most encouraging passage in the New Testament to one of the most sober immediately following it in its warning for us. And I suppose this is a good moment to just like establish a branch's value that we preach the word of God. And so when a passage comes up and it's encouraging, we preach an encouraging message. When a passage comes up and it's a challenging message, we preach the challenging message because we're relying on the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. We believe that God is speaking by His Spirit. It's not my words. So if He's speaking, we got to listen. There's something in the encouragement for us. There's something in the challenge for us. And the point of this week and its challenge is that following up on the encouragement from last week, all that grace, all that mercy, all that help that's available to us as we approach God's throne, it's available to us who are in Jesus. And as long as we're in Jesus, as long as we have our faith in God, we have that assistance available. But if we turn away from Jesus, if we reject our faith, we will have no access to that help any longer. We will end up in a place of judgment with no one to empower us. Let's read Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. The verses will also be on the screens. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Let's pause there this morning. And, and look, it got a little brighter there at the end, right? We turned a little corner, a little bit of encouragement, but we got to do some work with the warning before we get there. Now, the writer begins in verse 11 of chapter 5 by stating... We have much more to say about these things. What things is he talking about? What are the things that he's got a lot more to say about? Well, what we left off on from last week. We were talking about Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, how he relates to us. And he's saying, I got a lot more to say about that. And he's going to follow up on that 
And we're going to take up that topic again about Jesus as our high priest in chapter 7. But he's prompted, it appears. He's kind of stopped in his tracks as he's riding to them by the Holy Spirit in order to give this warning. Considering the spiritual state of his audience, he contends they ought to be teachers at this point in their walk with God, but they are still babies in the faith. And it's not that he expects them all to be pastors preaching on a stage. They're all going to have these doctoral degrees in the faith. But he expects them to have some sort of mastery over the things that they've been taught so that they don't need to be reminded again and again and again and again of the same basic things. It sort of reminds me like this last week, I played pickleball for the first time. I was on a team with Pastor Brock right here. And there's a rule that when you serve, it has to bounce. And then when someone returns it, it has to bounce once before you can hit it back over the net. And that's a basic rule. It's how every round starts. You serve, it's got to bounce. You return it, it's got to bounce. I want to let you know, I needed to be reminded, we needed to be reminded about, I would say, literally 53 times in the course of that game. That's 53 points counted against us because we got a little overeager to hit the ball. We should have known by the 10th time. We should have grasped the basics, but we just couldn't get there. And Austin is sitting right here. I think he was a part of that. He saw some of that. Brian was, they can, they can, 53 times is literally accurate. So what are the basics that these early Christians need to be reminded of again and again? Well, we, we see that they're presumably starting to be listed there in chapter six, verse one. He lists this, this, this elementary teaching of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. They're needing to be reminded that whenever someone turns to God, they gotta change their life. They gotta give up their old way of living, that we all live in sin. It's, it's not like, oh, you're just born perfect and everybody gets to live their own truth and follow Jesus the way they want. No, we gotta quit reminding you about this. Like, you gotta give up your old way. You gotta entrust your life over to God. Verse two, he says instruction about cleansing rites. You know, this is a little bit more obscure. We don't have a lot of context, but it could be referring to baptism. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they identify with his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's the first action of a Christian, to be baptized. It, it might be instruction about Jewish washings and practices and rituals that they had because these were Jews stepping into the faith. He continues and says the laying on of hands this is another elementary teaching. This could refer to the reception of the Holy Spirit. You see this in the book of Acts where... Upon giving their life and faith to Jesus, they're baptized and then they lay hands on new believers that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Possibly it's for commissioning and ministry, laying on of hands, or possibly for being healed. He says, we've got to keep talking about the resurrection of the dead. You know, that's straightforward enough. This belief that, yes, Jesus died on the cross as a once and for all sacrifice for humanity's sins. But then to show that he's the son of God, to validate who he is, his authority, he was raised from the dead. And the promise is one day he's going to raise all the dead. To what? The final point, eternal judgment. This belief that those who have trusted in Jesus, who have had their sins covered, they're going to be raised in that resurrection to eternal life, to heaven. But they're going to be those who have died in their sins, who have not trusted in Jesus, who are going to be raised to experience hell. Now, these are teachings, even to this day, that still get debated. There are still people saying, ah, you know, is this really sin or not? Do we really have to repent when we come to Jesus? And they're just grace, da 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 You know, no, you need to repent as you trust in the Lord. You know, it's be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. 
live with this expectation of eternal life and, and living for heaven, right? You know, th- those are the basics. But still, today, we're even debating those things that were assumed basic 2,000 years ago. They should be those who, through diligent effort, are understanding this. They've heard all this stuff. They should be mature in this. They should own it and be able to share it with others. I mean, who stays a baby forever is what he says. Who keeps on drinking the same milk over and over and over again? By the time you get to high school, it's going to be pretty socially awkward, right? I got some high schoolers in the room. You, you don't stay on milk forever, right? It, it's just don't even go there with the, the visual there. The point is there are distinct stages of development in a human being's life. At one point, we're a baby, and then we change, and we become a child, and then we change, and we're a teenager, and then we change, and we're an adult and then we're an elder, and there are distinct stages of development for us spiritually that we're supposed to move through. There's a point at which we're a baby, but then we move on to being a child, into a teenager, into adulthood, and into being an elder. But somewhere along the way, early on in the process, he's saying you got stuck. You didn't move on to the next stage of your spiritual development. Now, what was their deal? What was the core problem? It's recorded in the first verse that we read. He says in chapter 5, verse 11, it's hard for the teacher to go on teaching them because they no longer even try. They no longer even try. In the original language, the literal interpretation of this is that they are becoming sluggish or slow in hearing, uh, meaning they are becoming lazy, spiritually lazy. So I suppose the very important thing first for us to grasp about the issue that's going on here is that he's not saying, oh, you guys just aren't smart enough. You know, you don't have the intellectual capacity to understand the way of Jesus and the will of God. He doesn't say that's their problem. That's not going to be your problem. You know, it's not that, oh, you know, you're falling short because you're not smart enough. You don't have enough intellectual capacity. No, God has made this something that we can all accept. It's not that they didn't have some special secret sauce quality, you know, that made them in or out with God's will and plan. Like, like that's not going to be what's lacking in any of you, that you don't have this intangible secret sauce sort of capacity as a Christian, and therefore, sorry guys, someone else has it and you don't. No. What was their issue? It was that they were unmotivated. They lacked the effort that was required. And as a pastor, I must tell you, I see this as a core problem for Christianity in our country. We just don't seem to be spiritually motivated. Now, I'll tell you as a landscaper of my own house that a lack of motivation can compound really quickly into some big problems. You know, every week I'm out there mowing my lawn and I can feel pretty good about myself, at least being that motivated. Look at me, I'm out here. You know, my my lawn isn't going to be an eyesore for all the neighbors. But inevitably, as the seasons change, you know, you're mowing, and then there you go. You see some clovers. You, you see a few weeds, you know, here and there. But I'll tell you, when I'm lazy, when I'm not motivated, it's just goodbye, and I won't see you again for another week, right? But that compounds week to week, and then suddenly the second week, it's hello, you know, I brought some friends. You know, I go to mow those clovers. I go to mow that you know, grouping of weeds, and now, you know, it's like flowering and stuff, and I'm saying, well, that's pretty, you know, get rid of it, don't think about it. I don't get out the weed killer, I don't go and pull it, 
And guess what? It compounds and it doubles in size and it doubles in size and doubles in size. And it's all because I wasn't motivated to address it. And I see this spiritually in America. We appear to be tired. We appear to be listless. We're kicking the can down the road. We just can't seem to get ourselves to serve, to sacrifice financially. We can't seem to get ourselves to church and then to stay at church. And our spiritual issues... And the decline just seems to keep compounding year over year. And I've shared the statistics with you a bunch of times that in the last couple of years, church membership in America declined beneath 50% for the first time in all of the time that they've been recording this since the 1940s. That's in our generation that we're seeing church membership decline like that. You know, I, I shared with you that, you know, we're losing like 10% of people who claim that they're Christian in this nation like every 10 years, which represents you know, dozens of millions of people who are departing from the faith. And among those who do attend, you know, it's like 20% of the country attends church on a regular basis or so they say in the survey. Double that says, well, I attend on a regular basis. I come once a month. And because of this, we just see this continual compounding decline. I saw it on Easter and I said it. On Easter Sunday, this place was packed to the brim. It was packed outside. We had like 900 human beings in this space. It's like double our weekly attendance. And I can assume that's the case across America. All the gatherings across America, they're like doubling attendance. And I said at the end of service, I said, guys, what if this wasn't our once a year high water point as the church? What if this was the new standard? What if this was the low water point and we built from here? Wouldn't we be saying it's revival? Wouldn't that be the news headline in America? Wouldn't that be the thing that's being you know, told to the international audience? What is going on among Christians in the country of America? And what would it take? Diligence. Just showing up. Just being there the next week. And what did we end up with? Next week we went back to normal. But that's just a physical illustration of a spiritual reality that may even be true for you. Maybe you're physically here, but you're lacking diligence and maturity in your own faith journey. You're lacking motivation and drive, even though you find yourself in these seats. The danger that's identified here in Hebrews 6 is that a lazy and tired spiritual condition is basically one foot in the grave. So says the writer in verse 4 of chapter 6. And this is a really challenging section of Scripture. I'm just going to read it one more time before we try to really unpack it and understand who's he talking about and what's he saying. Verse 4 of chapter 6 all the way to verse 8. It reads, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now there is debate about what this warning means and, and who it pertains to and how you view that is largely going to be based on the Christian tradition that you are raised in or the one that you ascribe to today. 
And some of you are saying, I wasn't really raised in one that I can remember, and I don't really ascribe it. Just tell me what it means. It's the Bible. I'm here. I'm down for it. But, you know, let, let me catch it this way. There are going to be some who look at a passage like this and say, well, this is clear evidence a Christian can fall away from the faith. But there are others that are going to say, look, if you say a Christian can fall away from the faith, that implies some weakness on the part of God to save people and keep them saved. So what's really going on is there's someone who looks like they're a Christian, but they were never really a Christian in the first place if they ultimately fall away. Now, the reason for these debates is that for 2,000 years, people have been trying to understand the Bible. And so we've gone to the Bible and we've created these systems of understanding so that we can learn more about it. And then a lot of times we'll take those systems back into the Bible when we read it and we'll interpret it through that lens, through those glasses. My understanding is really guided by what this passage says plainly. And I don't see anything across the scriptural witness to stand against it. Yes, many people who leave Christian community, we can agree, were likely never Christian in the first place. But it also says there's a group that fall away. And what are they? Let's say it again. They are those who were once enlightened. What does that mean? You know, I read that, and I don't know what else you can read that as, as people who believed in the gospel. They've understood the truth of the message of Jesus. What other enlightenment is there except that enlightenment? If that isn't explicit enough, you've got this. They have tasted the heavenly gift. And some people will say, well, they're not Christian, but they come into Christian community, and they're close to all the other people, so they're like sampling. It's like an appetizer of the heavenly gift, but then they fall away. They don't get the whole thing. Well, the writer of Hebrews here says that Jesus tasted death. Did he sample death like an appetizer or did he die? No, these are people who've had the experience of receiving the heavenly gift. If that's not enough, those who fall away are said to have shared in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the quintessential marker in the book of Acts that somebody's a Christian, is the reception of the Holy Spirit. That's how you know that they are a Christian. They're furthermore said to have shared in the powers of the coming age, which in my understanding is the reality of eternal life and the empowerment for God's kingdom in the world. Now, I respect someone who sees things differently on this issue and a variety of issues. Here at Branches, that's how we work. You know, I'm teaching in a series midweek on Wednesday nights, Women in the Church. We're halfway through. Two sessions have been released. We've got two more coming. And there are going to be people who see things different on that. But the way I liken it is like, hey, let's say we're both Angels fans and we're arguing about who's the better teammate on, on, on the Angels. And you say it's Otani and I say it's Trout and we're going back and forth and it's so heated and I got my reasons and you got your reasons. But at the end of the day, we're both fans on the same team. <laughs> right? I mean, we might have a differing view of this passage or women in the church or any number of different issues. But at the end of the day, the reason why we're even arguing and talking about this is because we both have a fundamental belief in the authority of the scriptures and we both care a lot and that should be enough to unite us as believers. And that's what we're going to work for in the branches community. Can I get an amen? amen? But when I look at this, it appears the writer is referring to Christians falling away from their faith, which many of us would say we have known. We've experienced that in our own relationships with people in the church. If through their spiritual laziness, this is the warning, that they never grow up and they fall prey to the pressures around them to conform to the pattern of the, of the world, or if they go back to their old religious systems, which was the temptation of this original audience, then, then the writer says they'll have fallen from grace in some permanent way 
because of their disposition. In verse 6, he says it's like they are re-crucifying the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, when we place our faith in Jesus, we say Jesus was not just a man who died on a wooden cross in this humiliating form of execution. We say he did that deliberately because he's the Son of God, offering up his life as a sacrifice to cover our sins. And we believe that he was raised to life and has authority and is seated at the right hand of God. But if we make that confession and then we walk away from the faith, we make this other confession now where we say, actually, that wasn't true. Jesus is not who he claimed to be. He's not the son of God. He's a liar. He was just a man. And he died the death that he's supposed to die on that cross like a criminal. And that's all that defines him. So you are resubjecting Jesus to that public humiliation. If we turn away and say he's just a man, there is no reward for us. There's a parable given that, uh, that the writer refers to these individuals that do this. They are not like the land that receives the rain and produces this crop in return. They are like land that receives rain, but what they produce on the other side is thorns and thistles and just bushes and brush. What happens to that? The farmer burns it up. That's all it's good for. That's what happens in real life. You know, it, it's a tough analogy. It's a, it's a serious analogy, but that's real. Like a farmer works the land, tills the soil, makes it perfect, right? The rain comes down. He plants the seed. But if what grows up, it's not a crop. It's not producing fruit. What does he do with his land? He says, this is a waste of my land. This isn't what I desired, what I was looking to produce. And what is it good for? You pull it out and you burn it up. That, that's the fact of the matter. It's like anything you want to produce. If you don't get the outcome you want, it's like... What's a very Orange County holistic thing to try to produce? Let's say you're trying to produce kombucha. All right, and you've got your glass jar in the dark closet, and you throw the mother in there, or whatever it is, and you throw the yeast, and whatever the process is, and you leave it in that closet. Uh, it sounds dangerous if you're doing this at home. I don't recommend it. But let's say that's in there. What if it doesn't ferment? What if it doesn't actually produce what you want? You sip that thing. What do you do? You keep drinking it? No, you, you know, you're going to toss it out. That's essentially what the writer is saying right here. The implication being, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are the land that has received rain. You have received the blessing of God. You've received the forgiveness for your sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the teachings and the life and the path that are going to lead to eternal life. So I ask you, having received those abundant blessings, what has the land that is your life and actions produced? What has the land that is your life and actions produced from all this abundant blessing? A crop that benefits others? Or is it thorns? Is it thistles? Those thorns and thistles, that falling away, it doesn't emerge out of nowhere. It comes from a laziness taken all the way to its ultimate, sad, eternal end. It reminds me of the time that I fell asleep at the wheel of a car going 80 miles per hour. There were signs along the way, along the journey, that I was getting sluggish and tired 20-something hours into the journey, but I did not weigh the value of the cargo that was in my car, meaning me. I didn't consider the weight of my actions and the choices that I was making, and as a result, I nearly lost my life when I careened off the edge. So you are living this life, and the cargo of your life is your soul. And that state of laziness and the signs of that spiritual apathy, that is not insignificant. Weigh the value of the cargo that is your soul in this life. Wake up, because you may, through inattention, end up losing your soul. 
In verse 9, the writer, having given one of the sternest warnings outside of Jesus' own teaching, he turns to comfort the church again. He says, you know, I'm talking to you this way, and I'm talking to you this way for a reason. You know, this doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, it's the same thing that the doctor sits you down. What's his tone when he's saying, hey, do this, because you're, you're dealing with a, a serious health issue. You know, the tone is going to be serious. How do I speak? How does my tone and attitude change when my two-year-old starts to wander near the road where there's all this traffic? Right? I get real stern. I get real intense. Is that because I'm a really hardened person? Is that because I'm just a negative person that likes to grind the axe? Or is that because I have an instinct to protect? I have an instinct to nurture and care for. If my son, you know, listens to my tone and says, well, dad, that's really out of line. I'm going to continue in this direction. My first reaction will be, wow, that's very articulate for a two-year-old. My second reaction will say, to get even more strong right in my warning, to get even more stern. Because when the building is on fire, it's not the person who's speaking with urgency that needs to calm down. It's the people who are asleep that need to wake up. And the writer anticipates that from his readers, from the church and their response. He says, better things I think about regarding your salvation. And I extend the same to every single one of you guys this morning. This is not an eternal death sentence because of your failures and mine. Because I got plenty of failures, and I'm sure you have plenty of failures. This is not the eternal death sentence. Even if you and I admit lethargy and apathy that we're feeling spiritually tired, it isn't like, wait, has God's grace been exhausted for me? You know, that's not the message that's being communicated here. You cannot exhaust God's grace. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to cover all of our sin. But we can end up rejecting the grace that's being offered to us as a gift, just as the Israelites did in the wilderness, such as we've been learning about in the book of Hebrews. The writer believes they'll head in the other direction, back to how they used to respond when they were giving and serving and pressing on to produce a return for all the blessing they'd received in God. They don't need to fear that they have exhausted God's grace. Just like you guys don't need to fear, to, that's not the proper response, to fear that you have exhausted God's grace. They needed to be diligent. We need to be diligent to press on toward maturity so that we do not fall short, so they don't fall short of our hope. So on that front, I want to leave you with a few thoughts regarding spiritual maturity. To become spiritually mature, number one, we must move from unmotivated to motivated. To become spiritually mature, we must move from unmotivated to motivated. Again, if you can give Netflix three hours daily and you can't give 10 hours or 10 minutes in prayer, rather, I mean, what does that say about your level of spiritual motivation? If it's so easy for you to just sit on TikTok for hours at a time, but literally five minutes of prayer or being in the Word of God, what does that say about your level of motivation? We've got to move from unmotivated to motivated. And I get it. I live in a dual income home. There's so many pressures on me. There's so much hustling that needs to happen in Orange County. And here you can get to a passage like this and you go, oh, God is just one more person who wants more from me, right? But what if I told you that there was a habit that you could put into place every single day that would yield you more energy, that would lower your anxiety, that would realign your perspective, that would strengthen your character, that would motivate you toward the things that actually matter? What if I told you there was a practice that you could give your effort toward that would lessen the effort that you need toward everything else in your life? That practice that I'm referring to is prayer is aligning your life with the example and the word of Jesus. 
in being motivated to have that time with Him, relying on the help that He provides. It's not a burden to us. It's to release the rest of the burdens that we experience. But we've got to move from unmotivated to motivated in seeking that time. Number two, to become spiritually mature, we must move from receiving to giving. The word in the original language for baby that's cited here, infant, it actually literally means no words. That's, that's what a baby is. A baby has no words. A baby has nothing they can produce. They don't create anything. They don't give. They're not productive. They take. And they take. And they take. And they take. You guys know in the back. They take. They take. They consume. They consume. They consume. I said last service, they don't produce anything. Someone came to me afterwards. Well, they do produce something. Yeah, more work. More work. That's what makes them a baby is the fact that they consume. They are like the land that receives the rain and does not produce a return. And, and that's okay for a certain stage in our spiritual development. But we got to move on. And some of you have been here six weeks. You've been here six months or six years. And you are babies. Enough milk. You've had enough milk. You've had enough rain. There's been a lot of abundant blessing. There's been enough rain that's fallen onto your life from the Lord. Start giving. Start serving. Start pouring into someone else. Quit looking for milk. You know, some churches in America, they're entertainment-based. They're milk factories. There's just milk factories all the time. Let's agree that we've had enough. We don't want to be entertained. We don't need someone to go up on a stage and go, goo goo gaga, you know, to like elicit a reaction from us. Like, we're ready to grow up. We want the Word of God. We want to go through the encouraging passage. We want to go through the challenging passage because we want our lives to be transformed and we want to obey. To become spiritually mature, we must move from slacking to serious. I can't coast guys and be a good father. I mean, you guys know that. You know. You're just not going to be a good father by coasting. You can't coast and fulfill God's will for your life. If I coast... I'll coast off a cliff. Let me tell you guys, I've done it before. It's not nice. The stakes, the stakes are so high. We need to stop slacking. We need to get serious. This is serious. That's why the tone is what it is. I don't know how to motivate you. I don't know what it takes, right? I, I, I'm praying all this week. I'm saying, look, the passage is what it is. I hope it worked for the writer 2,000 years ago with his audience that, that he could help motivate them. And I want to be that, right? Through my life, I want to be someone worth imitating that you say, okay, they're pressing on, I want to press on like them. And, and Lord willing, I'm going to live into that. But, but, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. I could be the best spiritual personal trainer for all of you every single week, trying to pump you up. But at some point, it's whether or not we're going to choose to take it seriously. It's whether or not we're going to choose to become motivated and follow through. And I don't know how we get there, but God permitting, He will instill that desire within us. And so that's what I want to finish with in this time, is just praying for that, praying for that motivation for the unmotivated, praying for that, you know, wakening up. <laughs> you know, it's not God's Word that needs to, like, tone it down in the sense of urgency. It's us that need to match the tone that's being expressed to us because the stakes are so high. It's us that needs to take this seriously, to live with intention. And that's going to produce fruit. 
That's going to be the life that we truly even want to live ourselves. So let me pray this blessing. Let's seek the Lord together this morning. And Heavenly Father, I just thank you that we can approach you boldly. We're turning to you, not turning away from you. God, some in here, they're, they're motivated. Lord, would you keep their energy? Would you keep the encouragement going? They're not just looking to receive. They've turned the corner, and now they want to give, Lord. They want to follow your example. They've been poured into that abundant blessing. They've received the rain. They've been nourished. Now they're on solid food. So, Lord, continue to strengthen them. Continue to build them up to run this race. Lord, keep them focused with that seriousness that every day carries with it eternal potential because the actions that we have today can influence into eternity for your kingdom. Lord, what, a, what an amazing calling. But for so many of us, we're worn out, we're tired, we're exhausted. It's Orange County. There's so many things coming at us. We fall short. We need your grace and mercy. And you're not telling us that it's been exhausted. Oh, the same promise is there that you are there to receive us. We can approach your throne with confidence. Your grace and mercy is for us. Lord Jesus, you're ready to help us in our time of need because we're turning toward you. That's where the promise is. We're not turning away from you. But Lord, I, I come to the end of myself. We all come to the end of ourselves. How do we go from unmotivated and tired and just feeling lazy, feeling like we've got nothing left in the tank to having it in the tank, to feeling energized, to feeling enthusiastic, no longer about needing something, but giving it out to those around us. Lord, how do we go from like, we just want to kick up our feet, we just want to coast, to taking this seriously? God, how can that happen without a work of your Holy Spirit? How can that happen unless you change something in our hearts? So Lord, I'm praying for that. And I'm not praying for it for this next 15 minutes. What is that? If we just got fired up, if we just got excited, if we got enthusiastic for 15 minutes, Lord, it's Monday, it's Tuesday, it's Wednesday, it's next Sunday, it's two years from now, Lord. So Lord, would you do a work in us? Would you instigate that desire to become spiritually mature, to move through these stages on into maturity? Would we press on in diligence? Would that mark all of us, Lord, as your disciples? We receive the rain. Lord, the blessings, the goodness. But Lord, we seek to return that crop, that blessing that benefits others. Make it so, Lord. Gift us impressions of what that means in our life. Maybe we're going to pull people around us to hold us accountable. We're not going to let each other slack anymore. We're going we're to encourage one another forward and on. Maybe we're going to step into community. We've been just soaking up too much for ourselves. Maybe, Lord, we're going to begin to serve in a particular way. Lord, just lay it on the hearts of all of us that we take this seriously, that we work with diligence, that we respond to this warning that is meant to protect and guide us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.